listeners, we're breaking new ground here with the first time ever on the Taste podcast. We're welcoming back a guest, and that guest is Larry Kerwin. Now, we know him as just many things, right? Black 47 lead singer. But way back when, he was part of Turner and Kerwin of Wexford. We interviewed Pierce Turner last week about the re-release of their absolutely and completely retrospective. This week, it's Larry Kerwin's turn on Taste. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first for Taste. We're doing like a part one or two of this podcast. So last week we heard from Pierce Turner, and this week we're going to hear from Larry Kerwin of the Turner and Wex Turner and Kerwin of Wexford fame. First of all, I talked about this with Pierce. You know, what a tongue twister of a band name that uh, that he gave you. But welcome, Larry Kerwin. We want to really div- delve into this treasure trove, this time capsule you've uh, laid on everybody, which is called Turner and Kerwin of Wexford, absolutely and completely. So welcome, Larry. Pleasure, Mike. Yeah. So let's dive into this. Uh, first question would be, uh, what was the drug budget for this album? Because... <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you there must have been some bog mushrooms or something that you guys did because i gotta tell you this is all over the map it's i love it by the way but it was i just was thinking to myself it there's parts of it that are so focused and there's parts of it that were just that hippy trippy frog stuff that was probably going on at the time it was really a, it was really a fun Thing to delve into yeah but everything on that album is focused for one thing i mean i can see why people would say it's a uh, drug trippy and whatever but if you take say the traveling people i think it's maybe 10 or 12 minutes long um that was it did come together through drug trippy things but when we recorded <laughs> we had been playing that version for uh you know, for a couple of years, I would say. So it was down. We knew what was going on and how to raise the levels and how to um, bring the traveling people to life. They were the tinkers, as we knew them, to life through music. So you had the Ewan McCall song, which some people know, the traveling people. And then our idea was to have the words there, McCall's lyrics, but then to take it into an almost symphonic thing where you could travel with the traveling people around Ireland and someone who was listening to the vinyl at the time could actually visualize what it was like to be a traveler in those days and to travel around the roads of Ireland. So we knew exactly what we were after. Not sure it always came to pass, but we were we were focused. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, when you really look at take a look at the the album, there was a couple of impressions I had. I mean, you had some of the things that um, Father Riley says goodbye. Another one that was a real long song, and obviously the traveling people again, real long song, and that does kind of would put you you put you in the prog rock category. But yet, it didn't have those 
you know, wildly musical twists and turns. And I talked about this with Pierce, that it was really kind of British folk. It was Elizabethan things. Like I, I heard, I heard things like Lady Jane and his tears go by from the stones in that. I heard a little Richard Thompson in that. I, there was a lot of things that I heard in the album, um, which would include, you know, hunky dory Bowie. It, it, it was just an interesting uh, trip. I mean, obviously, as an artist, you're going to take whatever you were absorbing and then reinterpret that and make it your own in some way. So apart from the bog mushrooms, of course, what <laughs> what were you uh, what were you? What was your food musically and and maybe even from a literary perspective that was forming what was going into this music you were doing at the time? Well, you've got to remember where we grew up. We grew up in Wexford. And um, so for radio, you were listening to the BBC, you were listening to RTE when it was pretty out there. And you're listening to Radio Luxembourg, you're listening to John Peel, who was introducing all these new sounds every week. And then um, we were reading whatever. I was reading a lot of Graham Greene, reading Tolkien, um, reading Shauna Casey. You know, it was, it was a lot of different influences came to pass. And then Pierce and I grew up in this really interesting town called Wexford, uh, where a lot of people had gone to sea, including my father. My father was a merchant marine, merchant seaman, and he was a great dancer and he brought home tango records and cha-cha records. So I was listening to all that stuff. So when reggae came in and music like that, I knew it already. Yeah? I knew it through the tango music uh, of South America and you could just feel it. And you could also get AFN, American Forces Network, late at night uh, so you were hearing James Brown and you were hearing, uh, you know, all the great black performers. So it was just this wash of influences. So we weren't saying that we were going to, um, you know, imitate David Bowie. David Bowie was part of us already at that point. Uh, he, he was an influence, uh, as were Pink Floyd, as were Shauna Rita, as was Chopin, Mozart, you know, as was opera, because Wexford had an opera festival every October. So you got Italian opera in. So we were just, and, uh, we had an overload of music and influences. And that's interesting because some of the longer pieces, I almost thought they were a bit symphonic, right? So yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. So when you first got presented with the opportunity to do this and it started to sort of, Pierce, Pierce had mentioned originally you were gonna do something with the major thinker stuff and then it kind of morphed into, well, it's probably easier to look at something like this. When you first landed on this music and maybe it had been a number of years since you had uh, listened to it, what was your first initial reaction to it? Was it, uh, I would imagine for the rest of us that don't have previous albums in our canon, uh, it would probably be almost like going back to an old photo album of the 70s and watching what you were wearing and doing at the time. So take us back to when you were first starting to look at this and the remastering process. What was your original reaction 
with this much distance and time in your life going back to these songs? Well, for, for me, I can't talk for Pierce. Uh, for me, it was, wow, what a time we had in the 70s when we came over here. Uh, I mean, this country was, was an exciting place at the time. And we traveled pretty much throughout the country whether playing Irish bars where we played this music in it. Can you imagine even in playing this music now in an Irish bar? But back then, you know, the country was happening musically. Um, punk was just breaking out, reggae, and uh, all different types of soul. You, you had so much music and the country itself was becoming liberated, including sexually, which was a wild trip to moved to America at that point in time. So that was my first impression is like, wow, those were great days. And then listening to the music, um, I've never forgotten the music. You know, if you come up with a song like Father Riley says goodbye, it doesn't just float away from you. Every now and again, a line of it will come or I would hear Pierce's voice or uh, I would hear my own voice in my head. Uh, so it was, it was great to become familiar with it again and to realize that we were really original. You know, you, you bring up uh, a lot of influences and everything and the influences were there, but here were two guys from Ireland who really didn't give a goddamn what anybody else thought about us. We were on a musical mission to make original music. And that's always something when you, when you set out to do that, things happen. Like the same thing happened with Black 47 years later, when you set out to, to do something without caring what anybody thinks of except yourself, then you do things. When you start to think about, does this person like me? Am I worried about this criticism? then you become small but when you're thinking i'm going to do something special and pierce and i had this great um intertwining uh we i often thought that we were 50 percent of us was alike and then we had two other 50 percents very different people so we had like 150% rather than 200%, but it was really uh, like a fist, you know? You take The Girl Next Door, uh, the, the track on there, that's the first track to, about lesbianism to get uh, national airplay. Um, and that's, that's saying something. You got two guys coming from Wexford who did that in America and uh, when I was playing uh, Girl Next Door, when I started to play it again on Celtic Crush, you know, you're always looking for music that fits together. And I found that with, with Girl Next Door, the music it fit best with were uh, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, and the Undertones. When I mix those together with Girl Next Door, and then that makes sense because we were playing in CBGBs at the time that punk was exploding. So there's all these different types of influences and coming back to it was, it was great to rediscover it and to put it out in a form with the remastering 
that uh, people could really hear it and say, when that was made, the blackout was going on in 19, whatever it was, 1977. And so it brought back all those memories of living in the East Village at, uh, at, at the wild time it was and how New York was wild at the time. Anyone could come here and live and uh, live for very little money and just make enough money to live on and the rest of the time you were devoting it to creativity so a lot of different things came back to mind that's great i i want to kind of go back to the girl next door because it's a great track but one of the things that i really got is somebody that's been following both of you for years and i i love what you just said about i there's a 50 percent where you're dead like alike with one another yeah. and then you know so it's not, it's not one plus one is two for, with yeah. you guys. It's one plus one equals one and a half. Right. I, I, I totally get that. But it is also interesting as a fan of yours for so many years and a fan of his for so many years to really understand what the blueprints that would eventually be you and Black 47 and would eventually be him and, you know, being Pierce Turner that you could see in this collection, you know, in my for my money, I do think Pierce Turner is a, is as about as close as we have to a Brian Wilson. I, I think he's got he's got a offbeat, and I mean that in the best possible way. There's an offbeat pop sensibility and an orchestral sensibility to him that to me is like Brian Wilson's smile. I, I really do have such a high esteem for him. And for you, not so much, but still. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I mean, that was too easy. That was too you're easy. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and you're good too. No, um, <laughs> so but you know, for you, obviously, Larry, uh, you know, we've talked about this in many, many years. But you're there's so many of my favorite Black Forty Seven songs would have been character driven, and they would have been little novellas. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, you know, the husband beat me up so bad, I'll never get it up again. And I got caught and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you, you know, we can run, the, we can run the tape back and post, but, um, but, you know, the, the thing with, with it is that you definitely could see the blueprint of what you would eventually become and what your, yeah, what you'd eventually become. I think I'd leave it at that. So did you, do you kind of see that as well in a song like the girl next door, because I think that that's again been somewhat evocative of not everything you've produced, but there's certainly you could go, you could pick out a number of songs from each Black Forty Seven album where it's character driven, and they they almost the lyrics could read like a, a mini novella. Well, let me begin with Pierce because <clears throat> I have an inside view of Pierce because I, I remember him. I mean, we always knew each other knocking around Wexford, but from about the age of fourteen or fifteen on. Uh, we were kind of thrown together, maybe more like 17 when we really got together. But I was aware of him as a person. And you're right. He was really influenced by Brian Wilson. And I, I think he's, I think your analogy is, is really right. He found Brian Wilson to be a genius, and he is. And I don't know whether he didn't set out to become like that, but you know, Brian Wilson had a huge influence on him. Pierce 
doesn't get the credit right now that uh, I think he should have got. He was one of the great Moog synthesizer players. Yeah, because we got this Moog synthesizer and we didn't know how, <laughs> we didn't even know how to turn it on at first. <laughs> but then uh, because in Ireland, the Echoplex was a big thing uh, that gave you great sounds. So we, we thought, well, stick it into a goddamn Echoplex. <laughs> Let's see what happens to it. And all of a sudden we got this sound that was like majestic and mighty. We were never into being, you know, trad way. You got to do it this way. It was always, how can we make this goddamn thing better even, you know? So uh, Pierce uh, pioneered all that. He kind of gave it up then, but to become more a guitar player, but he's an amazing keyboard player. And I agree with you that he's, he's the closest thing Ireland has to um, a Brian Wilson. I mean, the, I mean, the, the three minute world album to, yeah. uh, out of the 20 years that I wrote for the Irish voice, I put that album up and my top five things that ever came in the mailbag. Yeah. I, I really, it was so good. He's great. <clears throat> He's never bowed down to any kind of pressure to be anything but himself. You know, he wouldn't even know how to, to imitate someone else. You know? and, and you know what was so great? And I acknowledged him for this when we talked, but the fact that his latest album was picked up by a real record company, you know, like he actually got a record company to fund it, yeah. fund the videos, fund the promotion as somebody that has been just clawing this whole time independently for the, for the record industry, such as it is to now catch up with the rest of us that have been admiring and loving him for so long. I think what an acknowledgement at this stage of his career to get that. Well, I remember a long, long time ago when we were back in Wexford, we used to go back at Christmas times and spend about a month there. I was just happened to be listening to Pierce in the bar. I'd stop talking myself for a minute. <laughs> I was listening to him talking to someone else. And he said, you know, I'm never coming back here to open a bar or anything like that. This is what I do. You know, I make music. I make original music. That's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I thought it was, that was really great hearing that you know i'm not coming back here to open a bar and give up what i'm doing this is the way i am and uh he's a unique person and uh i i think he's a, an irish national treasure i hope he gets more recognition and uh, but if not he has made some great music and original music that no one else could even dream of making because it comes from Pierce. And that was what Turner and Kerwin was about, was that it's us. And whatever we come up with is going to be goddamn original. You might not like it. That's your problem or your privilege. But we will know that we've done original work. And to get back to the girl next door, because I just remembered um, something about that. In the East Village in the 70s, there was a very uh, big lesbian scene. And you just kind of got caught up in it yourself because you knew someone or whatever. But there was a girl, that, a black woman, that I knew in um, a place called the Kiwi Lounge where I used to go to four or five nights a week. It was an after hours. You didn't go there till three in the morning. 
and usually stay there till nine or 10. She was the bartender. And uh, we became really close and I could never, I, I thought we were going to, something would happen with us, but it never did. And oh, one, one Sunday I was walking through the West Village and there was a parade coming along. I was really hung over and after we, I drink until noon or whatever it was. <laughs> and I see this parade coming and I see my barmaid friend in the parade. I thought, oh, I won't give her name. <laughs> There's Miss X. And then I look up and it was a gay, gay pride. <laughs> and she's passing me by at that moment. And she looks at me and goes like, <laughs> You're finally getting it. <laughs> and that was the, the genesis of the girl next door. That's really funny. That's funny. So you're right in, in my way that, you know, I'm a playwright too. So I tend to concentrate on character studies in songs. That's exactly I, didn't set out that, I didn't set out that way, but I became that way more through Black 47, actually. Yes, but what I'm saying though is you can almost see a little kernel of that in a song yeah. like The Girl Next Door. It's, it yeah. was it was always there. Did you tease it out and expand it? Certainly in Black 47 for sure. And we're going to talk a little bit about your playwriting and the new musicals and the things you have coming up when we get back for the break. Taste Season 2 is sponsored by the good folks at Career Letters, careerletters.com. They specialize in professional branding, resume writing, LinkedIn optimization. And what a perfect time to be looking at your career, your resume, your LinkedIn profile. Is it all optimized to find that next career of your dreams? We're heading into the final months of the year. This is the time to be looking for a job now so that you can actually find and land the job of your dreams next year. Visit careerletters.com for more information. And we are back with Larry Kerwin. Well, Larry has his hands in so many pots, and <laughs> that's the way it's always been with uh, with he and I. And I would love to hear from you uh, what you have going on for twenty twenty three. What would twenty twenty three look like if you and I were sitting here uh, this time next year? What would you want twenty? How would you have wanted twenty twenty three to go with all the things you've got going? Well, I'd hope to be still alive. <laughs> <laughs> You'd hope to be still alive. <laughs> That's always a concern. Apart from that, <laughs> and, all, and all those all those IRS bills and those tax that you'd still be dodging all those uh, alimony payments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you, you'd be on the run still from a lot of people. Run, I'm but... sure. No, but well, but. <laughs> Well, the, the live music scene is pretty much gone. And anyway, I did 25, you know, tempestuous and uh, powerful years of Black 47. Uh, because apart from the 2,500 gigs we did, I did about 500 solo ones and whatever around the country. So that was a lot of live work. And I really wanted to get back to, uh, becoming a playwright again, and hence Paradise Square came about. So I've continued in, in that vein. Paradise Square took so long to put together that I always worked at at least one other project at the same time, because otherwise you'd go nuts. You'd be, um, 
you get just too caught up in the one uh, production. So I have three new musicals, one called Iraqi Rose, which will be doing a, um, a workshop at the Irish Arts Center at the end of January. Uh, another one about Brendan Behan called The Catacombs. Which you, which you revealed a little bit of that at the Irish American Writers and Artists Dinner. You, we had a little bit of a live tasting of that with some of the cast members of Paradise Square. And that's, that one song you, you uh, uncorked for us was uh, a, an amazing, it was amazing. It really just wet the whistle for more of it. Yeah, that one was called Greatest Mistake. I, I'd always had a fascination with Brendan Bean because, you know, being a drinker myself, uh, I, I thought that the, the whole emphasis on Brendan Bean and his alcoholism was just too much that people didn't know about the rest of his life. And for large periods of his life, he wasn't drinking at all. Um, so I went back and really rethought him and uh, dealt with his political life, dealt with his love of Shannos music, dealt with his love of the Irish language, dealt with the fact that it only come out in the last year, few years that he was having two children at one time with two separate women, one with his wife and one with a girlfriend. And the strain that had on him. Uh, so bringing that all together and then tying it up with the fact that Bean was diabetic and he was undiagnosed diabetic for a long time. So that when he drank two or three drinks, he started to pass out and hence all the alcoholism stories. So there's a whole other story to tell about this remarkable guy. And also the fact that he was addicted to fame, came from a poor working class family in Dublin. Um, he always said that I never minded criticism. I was just amazed that critics would be bothered writing about me. You know, that he, he needed, he needed to be at the center of attention. And in my world, he is the first modern figure to die of fame. And if you look, I always try to choose periods, watershed periods um, to set a play or a musical within. And Brendan Behan's death happened a couple of weeks before the Beatles appeared on uh, the Ed Sullivan show. So the world that he was longing for, this world of creativity and everything was just about to happen. And he had pushed for it all the time, but he died and the Beatles go on. And didn't realize it. Yeah, he didn't realize any of what he was kind of pushing himself. Yeah, he was the That's first- That's interesting. He was one of the first non-BBC voices, upper class voices to be featured on BBC radio. Up until then, if you came from Liverpool or you came from Dublin, uh, Dublin working class, or you came from Belfast or Glasgow, you didn't get on the BBC because it was just for people who went to the best schools and whatever. And being appearing on there with a few drinks, being interviewed and making fun of the interviewer who was trying to make fun of him, kind of opened up the whole BBC television and BBC radio 
to working class people. So I get all that in into this uh, this story about him called um, the Catacombs. The Catacombs was a place in Marion Row in Dublin where drinkers went when the pubs closed, and a lot of people like Patrick Kavna and J.P. Dunleavy, who wrote um, The Ginger Man and Brendan Behan, they gathered in this place. So this is where the, um, some of the action takes place. So that's two of them. And the third one is a two-hander. I'd always wanted to write a two-hander, just uh, musical, because when, when you write the big musicals, it's harder to spend time on the main characters, but if you only have two in it. And I could never figure out what to set it about. And then when Rico Kasich died, uh, I don't know, it had, a, it had a big effect on me. Remember he uh, uh, and I produced uh, Fire of Freedom for Black 47, and we became really close. But then uh, I, I let the friendship just, uh, I wasn't into hanging out with famous people for whatever reason, I've never really liked it. I, I've always found it a little bit, you know, they need a lot of maintenance, that type of thing. Rick wasn't that way, he was very quiet. And I just realized, man, you know, he and I could still have been friends all this time because we got on really well together, but I didn't choose it. And he was always open to it. Uh, but then I went on the road with Black 47 and the road throws everything out of proportion. You know, you, you get back and there's things you have to do and you, you're not getting in touch with friends and everything. I'm only finding now after Black 47 ended that I'm actually getting back in touch with people um, that I've met over the years. You just didn't have time for it. So to make a long story short, um, with Rick's death, I decided, let me place these two characters in uh, a rock and roll setting. I set it in my own apartment uh, that I used to live on Avenue B and Third Street, which is, which is a wild area. And I set it in the 80s. And it's about a couple who are in a new wave band. And they they're starting to happen in the East Village, kind of like the way Major Thinkers did. And then they get a break and they get on MTV and they're the toast of the East Village. And they get a, uh, an opportunity to go on the Letterman show and the guy doesn't show up. And of course the band breaks up. The girl has a breakdown. She goes back to her upper class suburbia house. suburbia life and suburbia life she then she, then, she marries has a kid then a knock then on the door <laughs> the ex-manager gets in touch and says they're making a movie about the east village they've heard one of the songs by your band and they want another one and they're prepared to pay a lot of money for it and she goes back to find him and that's where the play starts. So it's like, can they get it back together um, musically and can they get it back together romantically, even though she's married to someone else? Well, I know the, 
all the rage is the name of the show or the it was the working title when I saw it and I I was privileged to be at the cell theater when you workshopped it and I loved you in the 80s I mean god that could just slay the top 20 right now it was such a beautiful song it was I just loved it I thought it was it was so amazing to to watch the two-hander like that and and to your point you know there was a place for you to really delve into just two characters creating them crafting them through the song through the story um I could totally see why that would have been a a bit of a drug for you given how you know you had to create this giant world that was paradise square and everything that came with it so i want to go over to paradise square for a second because you and i spoke as it was going into previews in broadway uh, you were the second guest in taste right so here we are all those months later you had the tony awards it's it's now off broadway it's closed uh for now and i know it's going to I'm sure it's going to have a life of its own elsewhere. But, you know, uh, now that it's a little bit in the rearview mirror for you, what was that experience like for you? I mean, what was it like to sit there in the audience and have one of your things be up for a Tony and, and then to have the win uh, with the best female vocalist? That, that must have been such an amazing, amazing night for you. I remember thinking it was very, it was very long. <laughs> it was long. I was watching. <laughs> I was watching it. And it was very, very long. Yeah, you know, it's great when you see an idea that you had way, way back, and which we brought to life as hard times at the cell, and then go on and uh, get so many people involved with it creatively and financially and emotionally. Um, it was it was a big thing and it was a draining thing also it i found it draining towards the end probably because of my background you know if you if you take turner and Cohen of wexford we were whatever we wanted to be you know there was a discipline that was called for in putting together um, paradise square that i grew tired of in the end because um it was kind of, i'm kind of more of an improv person and you know fighting over little things i know it doesn't work in the long run because i've done that in so many bands and everything and people don't even notice what was important to me was the message was that back in the 1860s Irish <clears throat> immigrants fleeing the famine or the Ungurta Moor and African-Americans fleeing slavery or enslavement uh, meet in, in a dive area of New York called the Five Points and create a new culture and create a new people and we're able to do that at the worst time in American history, the Civil War. And we're able to come together and do something positive. We were able to create tap dancing, the music that would come out of um, going to vaudeville. So all these things came about through these two peoples meeting together. And the message was that if it could be done back then in the worst of times, 
it can be done again. So, but if you look, if you looked, so I get that. If you looked at what was going on in the theater for the, I went, I saw it three times, or three times, yeah. I saw it three times. And what I could tell you was that in every time I went, and you know, you talked a little bit about this is, this is a, 12 year journey, right? So you started it out, then boom, there's Black Lives Matter. And then boom, there's sensitivity to Stephen Foster songs. And boom, there's this. And, and to your point, there might've been nitpicking here and here and here. And if the message was that there was an Irish and the African-Americans came together, created a new culture and a new shared experience, my experience being in this in that theater, every night I was there was that there were definitely uh, i think there was a church a busload of baptists the one night i was there and when you were there was the jazz tap they all stood in their feet and they were dancing like crazy and then literally the other side of the room was the irish and the jigs would come up and they would all do their thing and then the whole the the whole theater would get up collectively when they would meld together and certainly for the big powerful finale so you know, it was really one of the things that I I thought just there was that, man, if the streets outside of the theater behave like what we just saw here, that there was each one of those cultures found something that moved them to stand up individually and then to stand up in a collective experience. I thought, oh, my gosh, if this only had one airing and that did that one time in that theater that would have been a success, never mind the Tonys. It was incredible. Yeah, and you know, one of the things, I mean, I'd always had intros into you know, black life because I lived in the East Village when African-Americans lived there. And the, the place I mentioned earlier, the, uh, uh, the Kiwi Lounge, that was pretty much, it was about 60% African-American. <clears throat> 35% uh, Latino or Latina. And so I, I knew black life and everything, but when we got together and we, we spent a lot of time up in Toronto doing workshops and then we did it in Berkeley and then in Chicago, I was living with uh, the, the, the black people again, you know, and everyone was moved by this experience that we were all we were all part of a family so i didn't even see people as being black or white after a while it was and that was the way life should be but that that's what struck me was that you know black people and irish people share so much and yet they're kept so far apart um by people on both sides you know um when well, it, well, even in the theater, I mean, again, maybe it was just the nights I was there. Even in the theater, I don't, again, I didn't know if it was a black, a busload of, of Baptists or whatever, but there was a black side, there was an Irish side, and then there was like, even there that I could see a delineation because for whatever reason, both, well, I got, you only gave me cheap seats. Maybe that was it, but I was always in the very back. <laughs> but you could see I, all the audience. <laughs> that was, well, that, that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting after. I was in the yeah. back row both time, two times I was there. I was there in the top, again, bad seats. Thank you very much for that, Larry. But, uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, it, it was a unique experience. That's what I'm saying. You could see. The, yeah. 
I saw the audience probably in a way that you may not have if you were in towards the front in that it was to the left, to the right, everybody together, which is great. So um, you also have tours coming up. I'm sure you have the uh, the, tri the annual trip to Ireland and you've got Celtic Crush that's also going pretty strong. Yeah, I'm, I've been doing that for 17 years now. Incredible. Yeah, and, uh, and I do it improv every, every week and um, I treat it like a gig, like a, because that's where Black 47 was. You know, I, I wrote out a set before each show, just in case <laughs> I had some kind of a mental breakdown or something. But in general, after the third or fourth song, it was like sort of set out and then we'd, we'd go with it. And that's the way I treat um, that, that Celtic crush on Sirius XM. You just go for it and amazing things happen out because of that, you know, you, because you, you're forced to confront the music in a way that you mightn't if you, if you um, thought about it too much, you know, it's music is very visceral and it comes at you and you're not at yourself from, from, um, from listening to it. Everybody does, but when I listen to it, I have to react straight away and give my first impression because it's three, two, one, and I'm on. It's like, what am I gonna say? If I say to myself, what am I gonna say? Uh, I'll just screw it up. I gotta just go and because I've been around music so long, I think um, it's one of the, the reasons people like the show because I'm often given the um, impression a musician would have of the music rather than um, someone who just appreciates the music. And that gives a, an, an insight into music that um, the regular listener might not should think about. You know, I can talk about people like say Shane McGowan. I know, I know a lot of these people well, uh, as well as I wanted to know them, <laughs> you know, and without giving any, you know, tell-alls or wearing like that, I can let people know what, what, what's it like to be on the road and in a band, because every band goes through the same things. Right. The dislocation, you know, it's, it's a lot easier nowadays. But I remember when in the 90s, when Black 47 would head off to travel the country, by the time you crossed the George Washington Bridge, you were in a different world. Your, your home life, everything was behind you and you called home and everything like that. It, but it was a very different thing. You were cut away as was immigration. And when you left Ireland, you never called home or anything like that. And most people didn't write letters very regularly. I, I actually did because I was kind of a letter writer, but... Um, on the onion paper. Yeah, on whatever. <laughs> but, we, had, we had the onion paper you, and write the back and the front of the onion paper because you were you wanted to get it in, under the weight of the one stamp. I mean, exactly. onion, onion paper, my God. But that's, you know, being able to see it through the eyes of a musician, to be able to, to let the listener know what it's like to yeah. be a musician, that's, that's a privilege. That's 100%. Well, they can check you out on Sirius Satellite Radio. They can 
I, I'm assuming the Black 47 website's still up. Is that where? Where's the All Things Larry place that people can find you and and get in contact with everything you've got going on in 2023? I think the best thing is the my Facebook page or the Black 47 dot uh, com site or Fans of Celtic Crush, which is now Christopher Carl's Friends of Celtic Crush. And then there's a Black 47 Facebook page. It's all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can tell you that those, I subscribe to most, if not all the ones you just mentioned, those Facebook uh, groups. And everybody was just so excited that Turner and Kerwin of Wexford's absolutely and completely was going to be <laughs> something. Because it was, it was often bootlegged and rumored and legends built around it. So the fact that people can actually hold it in their hands is great. I have to tell you, when it came in the mail and the CD, I'm like, I had to look around the damn house and say, do I even have a CD player? I know, I'm the same. <laughs> I had to go out in the car and listen to it in the freezing cold to prepare for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Larry, always good to talk to you and uh, best of luck with the album and looking forward to seeing what's on the horizon in 2023. Right, Mike, and uh, the best of luck to taste. All righty. All right. <laughs> That Larry Kerwin, he does just about everything. Novelist, playwright, musician, rocker, DJ. I've never seen him dance, but other than that, I think he can do anything. But I wouldn't even put dance past him. Thank you for listening to Taste. We are brought to you in a partnership with irishcentral.com. And this has been produced by the smiling voice, Barbara Farraher, my wife. I love you. We'll see you next week. <laughs>